Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 156, recorded January 30th, 2014. So today we're doing something a tad different. We're only covering one book. But it's a Mongo book. Yeah, what is it, like 93 pages? Is that the, the final page count? Uh, I believe so. 93, 96, something like that. It's pretty... 94 pages. Right. So, it is the comic book adaptation of William Shatner's Star Trek, The Ashes of Eden. Da-da-da! Yeah. Co-written by Judith and Garfield Reed Stevens. Yeah, they had something to do with it. But this was mostly Shat. Oh, totally. Completely. <laughs> Now, I've, this is the first time I've read the comic, because uh, mm-hmm. I, I bought the, the novel like the day it came out. I right. Like, I got to read this. Shatner right. writing his own, blazing his own path into the Star Trek uh, expanded universe. Right. So, uh, and I really liked it. I mean, obviously, mm-hmm. Kirk is maybe heroified a little bit more than he should be. So, uh, what did you think? Did you think that uh, maybe the Kirk character being a little more can't do any wrong? Well, actually, I thought he was questioning himself a fair amount in the book. As well he should have been. Because he was duped. But I I don't think of it as much as that being the problem, as that it is incredibly Kirk-heavy. So, yeah, there's parts they got Chekhov and O'Hara doing a little something. And, of course, Sulu's Captain Sulu of the Excelsior. So that's cool and stuff. And they got Bones and Spock in there. So, and Scotty. So everybody's got some parts in there. But this is, this is heavily Kirk, a, a heavy Kirk story, as you'd expect. I mean, come on, Shatner's writing it. Why not? Right. Um, I think it's more that than I think he's full of himself. But, eh. Right. Uh, he, he is running and jumping around later in the book, or in parts of the book, and he's pretty old. So uh, right. that that part I'm, I find a little bit difficult to believe at times. He's still doing shoulder rolls, as we'll <laughs> find out. He sure is. <laughs> <laughs> Which is so much easier in the comics than in real life, when you're guess, 65 years old or whatever. Right. I guess what was really jumping out at me was was all the scenes in the book because I, I listened to the audio book uh, yeah. before I read the comic. I did the same thing, uh, just to kind of refresh my my memory. I um, have never never read the novel, so that listening to the audio book was the, my first exposure. But listening to it and how many times in the audio book uh, Shatner's naked or ah! and I'm just like, yeah. Gee, how are they going to do that in the book? How are they going to do that in the comic? Yeah. And uh, fortunately, in the comic book, he's usually clothed, uh, and when he's not, you know, he still has the physique of someone much younger than what yes, Shatner should have been at this time. Exactly. So, definitely artistic license uh, on the penciler's part. Yeah, because it's one thing just to say in the book, you know, he's naked. <laughs> it's to actually thing. show it in a comic book. I have to see mm. it in a comic book. Yeah. But uh, all in all, I liked it. I- I'm... 
I read most, if not all, of the other Shatnerverse books. Right. Um, but it is kind of sad that this is the only one that got a comic book adaptation. Right. Maybe if DC Comics kept on the license, they could have done, done the other it. ones. Yeah. Well, something that I liked about it is it really is an extension. I mean, this is Star Trek Seven. if Taws did it. I mean, if the Taws was the seventh Star Trek movie. So this, it, it might have been something like this. So uh, a lot that happens in the book is an extension of where we left them off on uh, in Star Trek Six, So, right. I like that. Right, so... So... Yeah, so after the... After the... Their little closing thing where they're going to go get mothballed and... Right. What happened after that. Exactly. So, I do like that. There's another novel which came out around the same time that kind of dealt with the uh, same time frame called uh, Star Trek The Last Roundup. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's... Christy Golden, I think, wrote it. I might be wrong yeah. uh, on the author. Um, but in that one, it also deals with you know what happened um, after six and before generations. Right. And it, you know, this book and that book contradict itself quite. Sure. Different. Two different stories. Because you know Shatner was in his own universe. That's why they call it the Shatnerverse. <laughs> okay. So, oh. So anyway, so we might be playing a little bit of the uh, sound bites from audiobook. Audiobook. So uh, if you hear uh, Mr. William Shatner join us at some point, uh, he's not here in the studio. Uh, just playing a little bit of <laughs> the, the studio. <laughs> so I just want to remember, remind everybody, we're not getting anything for this. This is all for fun, right? This yeah, is this the is book just of the, the week club. Exactly, and if you listen to Shatner's, you know, soothing tones describing it to you, and you're like, I want to get more of that. Yes, you can. Uh, I think you can buy it on cassette still at Amazon, and I'm sure it's available uh, at any of the, uh, you know, Audible or Amazon. I bet Audible. I bet you can iTunes. get it on Audible. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it is because I think I got some of the later Shatnerverse from Audible. So there's my disclaimer. There you go. Okay, so. Shall we uh, get going with the story? Let's do it. Cool. So we're going to break up the rather long novel, or (laughs) novelization, into four parts. So I'll be doing the first two parts, and in between the first and second part, we'll be taking a break and discussing what we have read in the first 23 pages. All right. So... This is titled Ashes of Eden. Published date is 1995. I didn't see a month. So, uh, creative team is made up of William Shatner with Judith and Garfield Reeve Stevens on the writing tasks. Penciler Steve Irwin, inker Jimmy Palmiotti, letterer Willie Schuber, colorist Gloria Vasquez of Gas House Graphics. Separations by Digital Chameleon. Editor, well, I didn't see any editor credit, so I'm going to assume it just did, did it by itself. Well, uh, Margaret Clark. Margaret Clark. Okay, great. Thank you. The cover's primary color is red, and the background looks like amorphous flames, making it look like it's taking a place in hell or the surface of the sun or something. Kirk's head dominates the center. Enterprise A is breaking up and catching fire in a similar way to her predecessor. Perhaps she, too, is finding her end 
re-entering a planet's atmosphere or something. We'll find out. The inside title page shows the Enterprise A in a maintenance dock high over Earth. She has significant damage, including a gaping hole in her saucer section, compliments of the evil and dead Klingon General Chang. Next, an unexpected scene is presented. Kirk didn't look back to the past. He slammed into it running, diving, hitting the volcanic ash of Tycho 4 shoulder first, rolling to cover. It's the desert surface of Tycho 4 where Lieutenant James Kirk, tricorder in hand, is running, diving, and taking cover from something. A fellow dead crewman of the Farragut is on the ground at his feet. Unconscious? Dead. From his communicator comes the voice of Captain Garavik, telling the young lieutenant to keep scanning for the creature. He must pinpoint the exact location and forward it to the ship's fire control. Until the sensors are back online, Kirk and his tricorder has to do the job. A figure comes unexpectedly into the scene, laser pistol drawn. It's Drake. As Drake cranks his pistol up to fire full power, Kirk tells Drake hand lasers can't stop the creature. Garavik says the ship's phasers will. With a maniacal grin on his face, Drake asks, What does Garavik know? Kirk says he is the captain, when suddenly his tricorder emits an audible bleep. It's picked up something, Kirk says. That sickly sweet odor. Too sweet. Overpowering. It's coming back. At a time in the past, faced to a certain death, Kirk hesitated, but not this time. Kirk transmits coordinates and orders, Fire all phaser banks, now! The sky lights up and Kirk and Drake are knocked to the ground. When they get up, they see a smoldering hole in the ground where the creature was. No creature. But they look up and see the creature's gaseous form ascending to the source of Hell's fire. It's on an intercept course with the Farragut. They see a blinding light from high above. The ship is destroyed. All Drake can say is, Great instincts, Jimbo. The creature is coming back to the surface. For them. Drake fires as the creature approaches their position and says, See you in hell! Kirk says, End program. The surface of Tycho 4 vanishes. A much older Kirk takes a virtual reality helmet off his head. He is wearing a virtual reality suit studded with electronic devices and circuits. The room he stands in looks very familiar to any fan of Star Trek The Next Generation and apparently is called the Holographic Environment Test Suite, as per a sign on the wall. A Starfleet officer in the room tells Kirk he was right to hesitate the first time on Tycho 4. If he had not, everyone would have died. He goes on to say that he would love it if Kirk tried more of his exploits. Virtually all of them are available online. Kirk asks, why mine? The young man simply says, well, you're a hero, sir. Kirk says, oh, that, then goes on to say, those exploits were just my job, a job I did long ago. Kirk leaves the room and thinks about how he is a starship captain without a ship. Intolerable. Meanwhile, at an old and oddly shaped space station near the Federation's frontier and Klingon Empire's old regions, Pavel Chekhov is wondering whether this smuggler's den will be the last place he'll ever see. 
He is up against a wall, pinned by a large Klingon with a disruptor against his face. The Klingon wants to be convinced that Chekhov and Uhura's claims that they quit Starfleet and are now on the wrong side of the law is legit. Pavel's words convince the Klingon. He asks them what they want to purchase from him today. Weapons-grade antimatter? Photon torpedoes still in their crates? Disruptor cells. He has them all and more for the right price. Ahura says they want a battlecruiser. Katinga class. The Klingon tells them to meet him in Cargo Bay 12 in two hours. He and his two Andorian associates leave the area. Ahura asks Chekhov what he is going to do with a Klingon battlecruiser. Chekhov says a man can dream, can't he? Meanwhile on Earth, Jim Kirk is watching the rain fall into the night out his apartment window. Dr. Carol Marcus comes out of the other room and asks him to return to bed. He says he can't sleep. This world man has turned back into Eden is too perfect. No challenges left. No challenge, no life. He says he can't sleep. She's up there, the Enterprise, calling to him to come back out to the stars with her one last time. She asks why he keeps doing this to her, to them. All he can say is he does not know. Meanwhile, back on the space station, Chekhov, Uhura, and a woman in a flight suit is waiting for the Klingon and his Andorian thugs. Chekhov says they might not show. Maybe he could not lay his hands on the ship. The woman in the flight suit holds aloft a heavy-looking metal briefcase. She says even if he could not get a ship, he will make a play for the case and its contents. The Klingon's gang comes up behind them with guns drawn. The Klingon says, negotiations have begun. The woman in the flight suit had disappeared just before the gang's arrival, but now shows herself by way of her phaser disintegrating one of the two Andorians. Ahura and Chekhov dive for their lives behind some cargo containers as the Klingon and remaining Andorians open fire on them. The Andorian goes down with a phaser blast from Ahura. Taking advantage of the distraction, Chekhov launches himself downward on the much larger Klingon and knocks him to the ground. The Klingon works his way back up and readies a death blow when the woman in the flight suit puts a gun to his head and convinces him otherwise. They all get up and the woman asks where the battlecruiser is and how many more can be obtained for her. The Klingon said he cannot get any. It's beyond his abilities. She tells Ahura and Chekhov to leave. No witnesses. Fearful that his death is what she wants no witnesses of, the Klingon says he has secrets of the Empire she would find of great value. He says he knows about Chalchaj Kume. She says they have much to discuss after she gets rid of some witnesses. She turns and coldly shoots Chekhov and Ahura. The scene shifts to Starfleet HQ in San Francisco, the Great Hall. 2,000 dignitaries from all the worlds of the Federation and non-aligned worlds, even from Klingon and Romulan empires. Kirk looks up, and of all these people gathered, the only two he cares to see are his friends, Spock and McCoy. They chit-chat a bit about the rain and how Kirk could not sleep. McCoy goes to get them a drink. 
Kirk tells Spock he has been thinking about leaving Starfleet. Spock is not surprised. Spock responds to Kirk's queries whether it was a good idea or not by saying only Kirk can answer that question. As Kirk's gaze swept the hall, people on the dance floor caught his glance. Most smiled back at him. Then he found one person who was already looking directly at him before he saw her. It was Kirk's turn to be startled. Perhaps it was her eyes. Heavily lashed, dark, and enticing. If he'd been a 20-year-old cadet, he'd have been by her side in 15 seconds. Then he was startled again as he suddenly realized those haunting eyes belonged to a Klingon. Her dark hair, dramatically swept back for the reception, revealed the ripples of her high-ridged brow. Then he saw her ears. Pointed. Klingon. And Falcon. She smiled at him. The smile transformed her face. She's gorgeous. That's why I'm staring. She's the most beautiful woman in the hall. And she's letting me stare at her like a shuttle pilot who's been on solo duty for the past two years. A striking Klingon Romulan woman is staring at Kirk. From the podium, the President of the Federation asks for their attention and makes the announcement that Admiral Androvar Drake is Starfleet's new Supreme Commander and Chief. Shocked, Kirk can only say, No. Later at their dinner table, McCoy and Spock mention that Kirk went to Starfleet Academy and served on the Farragut with Drake, didn't he? Kirk asks about the woman that has been hanging around their table. She looks Klingon and Romulan, maybe? She is moving towards their table. Kirk moves to stand, but feels Drake's hand on his shoulder. Drake calls him Jimbo and thanks him for coming to the party. He wanted Kirk to know that they are decommissioning the Enterprise next month and going to use her in war games for target practice. He will make sure Kirk gets a piece of her hull to mount and tell the grandkids about. Oh, but he has no grandkids, does he? Drake moves off, having completed his attempt to damage Kirk. Kirk turns around, looking for the young woman, but she's gone. As the Enterprise will be soon. As old captains will, eventually. The scene shifts to one of many hangars on the old space station. Chekhov and Uhura find themselves tied up beneath an ore shuttle that is getting ready to take off. They will be fried in its exhaust. Jade must want their bodies to be found so it looks like an accident happened. As the hangar's doors open, air rushes out and the two feel the heat of the ship's engines. The shuttle takes off, but there are no charred bodies on the bay floor. Chekhov opens his eyes to see Captain Sulu. They were never alone. Sulu had been tracking their progress since the mission's start. Sulu says their mission has changed since the computer's translation of the Klingon phrase Kolchage Kume. They look at the translation and Uhura says there's no one at Starfleet Intelligence they can trust with this new information. Not after what happened. Kirk materializes at his childhood home in Iowa. He thinks how he has not found any answers to what he should do with his life. He failed again with Carol. He is no longer part of Starfleet. And now that he is here, he knows he can never go home again. Peter is happy on Deneva. No one else in the Kirk family is interested in the Kirk family home, so this will be the last visit before he transfers it to the next owners. Kirk enters and walks the lonely, empty halls. 
he hears something and enters a room. Inside it, he sees the strikingly beautiful Klingon woman with pointed ears he saw at the reception. She is young and shapely. Her skin-tight leotard with the plunging neckline is designed to elicit panting by males in her proximity. She says, at last, and gives Kirk a big passionate kiss. Kirk asks her what she is doing in his parents' home. She says her name is Talani, and she came here to find Kirk. She came here to find the hero her world needs. A moment later, a projectile comes through the window and slashes Talani's upper arm. She drops in pain. Kirk picks her up and moves her into the home and away from any windows as more projectiles enter the house. Talani says the assassins are after Kirk. The front door explodes. Wow. Wow, what's going to happen? That was quick. (laughs) It was? Yes. Well, they mean they got in the house quicker. I meant the the little exchange between Talani and Kirk before the uh, attack. Yes. It was very brief, and right away, Suckface is happening, which should, quite frankly, set off alarms for Kirk. So, I didn't want to compare this to the book, because, you know, they are two different animals, but she has three word balloons before this attack starts. Yeah, right. I mean, actually, no, I take that back. She has, yeah, three, if you count, at last. Hmm. Um, That seemed really quick to try to explain, you know, it's still supposed to be a mystery why she's there, but... Right. But anyways, it's good. I'm I'm enjoying the story so far. A lot of yeah. intrigue going on. Right. A lot of mysteries to be known. And of course, the biggest, most immediate one is, how will they survive this attack? Doesn't Kirk has no that. weapons. Talani doesn't seem to have any weapons. How will they do it? Right. And what's funny is that, you know, the whole time I'm looking at it, I'm thinking, he just said he was going to sell the house to somebody. And they're destroying it now. <laughs> yeah. That's right. I think their buyer might back out. Uh, maybe. Or maybe request a second inspection. Right. Now, that last panel, it, it does show Kirk kind of kicking open a panel underneath the stairs. And then you see it kind of clicking and, and they're no longer there. Right. I think we're supposed to assume they jumped under the stairs. Mm, yes, to something that's under the stairs. I do believe so. Well, I've seen Harry Potter. That's where Harry Potter lives. He lives in the room underneath the stairs. <laughs> it's not Harry Potter's room. Oh, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> I have faith. I have faith in Harry Potter. So while, while we're here at the house, I do have a comment about the whole my nephew Peter. Yes, me too. My nephew Peter doesn't want the house. So in this continuity, like... In the show itself, um, a Simon Annihilation, is that it? That had his brother in it? Uh, uh, right. Mm-hmm. That so, was really Shatner in a mustache, yes. Right. But I don't think they ever mentioned anybody other than Peter. It was always the expanded universe that always said that there was had three, more people. three kids. Yeah. Uh, and their names always changed. Except sure. Others. But... Um, but at I least thought, he, I thought that was odd here. Yeah. Well, at least he, I thought it was odd at first, but at least he left it open. I mean, the wording that they used was no one else in the family is interested. So it kind of leaves it open that there could be. I mean, there are other people in the Kirk family. It's just right. that nobody's interested. And although you would think he would have mentioned one of his nephews if he mentioned Peter, 
I mean, if there weren't more nephews, he would have mentioned somebody in addition to Peter, the other the other two brothers. Right. But it does kind of leave it open, leaves it a little, leaves it a little nebulous. Right. But yes, I, I noticed the same thing. Why call out Peter? What about the other guys? Right. And what are their names in this issue? That's what I was wanting to know. <laughs> you you want another sampling point to see exactly. what they say this time? Right. Because the names do keep changing, as you mentioned. My big question, and you're, you know, I love original series. Uh-huh. I've watched all the episodes several times, but although I as a child, I don't know it as well as you do. So uh-huh. I'm, I'm throwing that out there right now. Am I supposed to know who Drake is? Because I don't. No. Okay. No, I I don't know who Drake is. Yeah. So okay. Yeah, the, the, there was the shore leave episode where he talks about Finnegan. Right. And there have been references to his Starfleet days. And even later, references to the Farragut, but I don't remember Drake. Now, maybe he was mentioned, but I don't remember him. Right. I mean, I, I didn't remember him, and I even tried to look him up on uh, oh, good. Memory Beta. So you did. And, mm-hmm. and the only reference to Drake was this book. Yeah. Okay. Mm, I agree. So, I was pretty confident that he didn't exist anywhere else, but just thought yeah. I would ask. Right. Well, I want to point out something that's kind of uh, interesting to me. Uh, just comparing the audiobook with the comic, because there are differences. And they're, they're probably, I, I think, the audiobook I have, I don't remember whether it is an unabridged or not. I think it's abridged, but not 100% Yeah, I don't sure. think they ever came out with an unabridged version. Right, either. okay. So it's a relatively short, short audiobook. So it was interesting how they have Carol in this, mm-hmm. in the comic, because they didn't have her in the in the audiobook. Right. So... Interesting decision to include her in here. Uh, also, Kirk's a jerk with her. <laughs> I mean, he, I guess he's being honest, but geez, it's like, come on, man. When are you going to like like retire and take it easy? Uh, I mean, it, it's I mean, you wouldn't have much of a story if he if he didn't keep on going for the brass ring. But it's like, come on, at some point, you know, she's beautiful. I mean, she's the Mother She's the mother child. of your child, who's dead. So, you know, just retire a little bit. You know, become a too old space tourist. Go out and see the see the universe, but not with a phaser in your hand. Right. And who knows, maybe even some adventures could happen on accident. It could be like a new series, Captain and Wife. <laughs> yeah, but we know that's not going to happen because we've all seen Generations. <laughs> yes. Yes, we have seen Generations. So we know he's going to survive the story also. Right. Yes. Okay, so how did Talani get into the house? Kirk had to use his handprint to unlock the front door. So did she break in? Um, the audiobook didn't say either. She's just no, there. She's just there. Yeah. Well, they might have advanced uh, Romulan slash Klingon weapons. Or, it could uh, be. Tech. I mean, he did say that the security system is the same one that he had when he was a kid. And it's still programmed uh, the way his mom programmed it. So right. Probably. But so she probably programmed it to let hot Klingon Romulan <laughs> hybrids in? Right. If you're showing that much cleavage, open the door. <laughs> and don't log anything about it right. to warn anybody. Yeah, good point. I hadn't even thought of that, but hmm. I guess. I just—it's one of those things you don't want to worry too much about in an action thing, um, you know. It might be one of those things that uh, 
that Moffat would have said, oh, the readers are intelligent enough, they'll figure it out. It's a big place with a lot of windows. I mean, I'm sure if he goes in the back, there's like one broken. Well, and yeah, okay, so she could have broken in. I, I'll agree with that. It's just they never say. They never say. And if you've got a handprint entry system to let you in, you probably have something that can detect shattered glass. I'm just guessing. Yeah, so it's a pretty sophisticated security system because he says that it hasn't been reprogrammed since he was a kid and it still recognizes his handprint as that of a little kid, Kirk. Well, did she, I thought it was the same programming that, uh, that his mother programmed it with. I didn't remember them saying from when he was a kid. but Yeah, I guess she could have. I mean, yeah, I guess she didn't die on the uh, Kelvin, so. <laughs> right. She right. could have programmed it, you know. Five or ten years ago. All right. Yeah. So who is this mystery woman anyway? This this agent. Uh, Jade. This agent Jade. Yes. I don't know. She she's uh, pretty nasty though. She is. She is uh, a motivated moralist person, as near as I can tell. I mean, shooting Chekhov and Ahura, killing them. How dare she? Pretty cool. Okay. I think we're gonna see her again. Well, probably. Now she knows where the uh, Chow Che Chimane is. Or exactly. Whatever. And we know that is our Maltese Falcon. That is what everybody wants. So. Every- yep. Everybody wants it, even if they don't know what it is. <laughs> exactly. So, reading this and also reading the book, when she just stuns them, and then they both, you know, a little bit later, Chekhov wakes up and realizes he's not dead. Mm-hmm. You know, I still wonder, why didn't she kill him? I mean, even if she wanted there to be bodies, she could have... Oh, yeah, she could have killed him. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Well, obvious. I think it's a little obvious. You know, Ahura and Chekhov. Bar the crew, you can't kill them off. Oh, yeah. They're heroes. (laughs) I thought you said there wasn't going to be a logical reason why. (laughs) Well, that's a logical reason. (laughs) It's not good for the narrative, but it's a logical reason. Right. You can't kill off any of the major characters unless they're Tasha Yar. So what'd you think of that weird shuttle? Um her shuttle, the Oh the, Talani's? No, no, no. Um, we haven't got to that Jade's, yet. The one that almost fried Chekhov in a horror. Oh, I didn't think much of it. Yeah, it looks really weird. Looks like three Twinkies kinda stuck together. <laughs> Speaking of weirdness, that space station, I didn't bother going into describing it, but that's a weird space station. It it it, it kind of looks like something that um, Tim Burton would create. It looks like a Tim Burton space station. Yeah, especially with the, like the random windmill <laughs> over to the right yeah. of it. it. It almost looks like a root system for a tree under the ground. Yeah. So both here and in the book, it says that it's was created eons ago, and nobody even knows what race created it, and. Over the years, different races have just tacked on parts. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I thought this was a good visualization of, of what uh, Shatner was describing in his book. Yeah, not bad. Was not what I was picturing, but it does match up with what he was saying. Right. Cool. So, uh, back to Jade real quick. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you think, did you see the little Easter egg of the, uh, the credits that uh, she and Chekhov were carrying around? The, they have the big suitcase full of uh, Federation credits. And that says uh, credit exchange, uh, right. Deneb. 
but get a five. But the logo is the Star Trek Five logo that was written and directed by the Shatner. That that's what to, that's supposed to be. That has to be on purpose. Yeah. Hmm. If you look at the posters for Star Trek Five, that's uh-huh. that's the that's the font and everything they used. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. I thought it, I thought it was a ni- nice little nod. Oh, is that what that was? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't take it that way. Although I did notice the you know how they had that that on there. I thought that was a little bit odd because they were trying to make it like in your face. Right. So it is dead up five. I forgot. The no. Well, no. that's what it says there, but the, but that's not yeah. No, the planet they the were spe- on was on Nimbus three. Okay, but I'm telling you the the font the the five font. Yeah, yeah, I, I get what you're saying. I think that's that's as far as it goes as far as the nod Star Trek. Planet. Okay, uh, I just wondered if Deneb was related to something else in the story. Okay, not that I know of. That's yeah. just I think. So that's supposed to be like Switzerland or something. Exactly. <laughs> that's where all the money is, Deneb. I thought that Jade's uh, combat phaser was kind of cool. It's it's more or less a combat phaser that we're all used to in Star Trek V, only it has a few tweaks to it, including like an extra clip on the front, power clip. Right, I like the clip on the front. Yeah, looks it probably gives gives it that extra little oomph, huh? 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 Yep, looks like a submachine gun or a little little right. hand hand machine gun, whatever you right. call it. Right. I liked the shot of the Enterprise in dry dock mm-hmm. and that they're scrubbing off the NCC-1701A since it's being decommissioned. I thought that was kind of cool. Right. Good point. And, yeah, uh, so it makes it look like the little stick people down there working on it. Right. Yep, just spraying it with paint thinner. <laughs> <laughs> scrubbing it off. And then uh, my last comment is the whole holodeck thing with the the Farragut. Mm-hmm. I know that the Farragut's mentioned in the original series, but mm-hmm. what is this? What, what I mean, obviously the Farragut didn't blow up in what really happened. But, oh no, not at all. But who did? Who died? That that Kirk always worried that he hesitated too long. Well, this is directly out of one of the episodes. I, I, the title doesn't come to me, but this is the one where they go to that planet and there's a landing party there. No, maybe not that planet, but a different planet. And there's a landing party down there, and one of the guys in the landing party hesitates to kill this, to, to shoot at this cloud or something, and ends up, everybody else in the landing party gets killed. But this guy survives, and he's, like, wrecked with guilt and everything. And then Kirk, when he finds out, you know, the details of what went on, he said, hmm, that sounds like what happened to me when I was a lieutenant on the Farragut. Uh, okay. So this completely has to do with that. At, by the end of that episode, they he realized that him hesitating would have made no difference. Uh, the person on the landing party with him would have died no matter what. Okay. So that's what they they finally came to the conclusion of. They use an antimatter burst to kill the thing, uh, an antimatter bomb to kill the thing. And this, interestingly enough, goes back and replays the original encounter. But Kirk didn't hesitate. But because he didn't hesitate, you know, the Farragut fires the phasers and uh, 
the creature has the ability to go up into space and destroy a starship. So. Okay. I thought it was kind of cool. Yeah, but. no, I, I figured it was something like that, and I, and I liked it. But yeah. I, again, and I was just like, who's this Drake guy? Well, Drake was never mentioned in that, that Taz episode. Okay. And, and okay, so the holodeck's playing out, Farragut blows up, Yep. and Drake says, see you in hell. Mm-hmm. Or see you in hell, Jimbo, something like that. Yeah. Just uh, keep that in the back of your mind and, and remember that it was only done in the holodeck, not in real life, because these events didn't happen in real life. Exactly. It's a, it's a video game. Right. On a precursor to the TNG holodeck. Right, which I thought was pretty good. I thought it was cool, too. And it's not here, but in the in the book, Shatner's wearing all this equipment, and you know you hear his inner monologue about how it is too heavy. Yeah. But you know he's he can't tell this this lab tech that it's too heavy. He he's not going to be the one that complains about it and stuff like that. Right. Uh, I thought that was pretty good. I wish they would have could have kept that in there somewhere. Right. They had to cut somewhere. Right. All right. That's it. You want to find out what happens? Let's find out what happens next. It was then the attack began. The kitchen window behind Teolani erupted in a starburst of glittering glassite shards. A spray of green blood blossomed over her shoulder, expanding like a galaxy in space. Her scream was low, drawn out, distorted. She hit the floor, hair flying. She slid, moaned, blood smearing from the angry green gash atop her shoulder, the black jumpsuit torn. The far walls shuddered with a spray of plaster. He scooped her into his arms, and holding her securely, he burst through the kitchen doorway, heading for the stairway. He knew there was at least two attackers. The angle of the two projectile blasts had told him that. The projectile weapons also gave Kirk a clue to the attacker's motives. If they had wanted to kidnap either Teolani or him, they'd be using phasers to stun them. Their use of projectile weapons indicated they wanted to kill someone and have a body left to show for it to prove that the job had been done, or to teach others a lesson. Kirk could imagine there would be a few old guard Klingons who would want a phaser him out of existence, but he was certain even Spock would conclude that whoever was charging up the porch stairs of his family farmhouse, they weren't after James T. Kirk. They were after Teolani. He heard them fumble with the lock plate. His glance swept upwards the stairs. The Academy taught that high ground was always preferable, but that meant it was always expected. Kirk pushed his boot against a section of the wood paneling that ran up the side of the stairway. A hidden, half-sized door popped open. The damp smell of the cellar enveloped him. It had been his playground as a child. Kirk heads down to the cellar. He tries to use his communicator to signal a recall that would transport them both away, but something is blocking the signal. They run through the bomb shelter, tunnel, that just so happens to take them to the old barn. After not finding them in the house, the attackers go to the barn, but Kirk has had time to lay a trap for them. Between he and Talani, they knock both attackers unconscious, but when Kirk takes a closer look, he discovers they are actually dead. Kirk is confused. He did not hit either one of them that hard. They make their way to Talani's ground vehicle that is parked at the entrance gate to the farm. On their way, she explains that her world is called Chal, and it began as a joint Klingon and Romulan colony during one of their brief truces. 
The colony was eventually deemed a failure and made independent since neither side wanted it any longer. There is unrest on Chal now. Dissidents want to use a secret on their world that neither empire knows about. Chal holds a treasure beyond all others that their enemies covet. Kirk sees Talani's shoulder wound is healed. Talani says this is their secret. She invites Kirk to come to Chal to save her world. Come and be forever young. Kirk thinks he cannot let this opportunity slip through his fingers. He now knows what he must do. He has decided to go. She pressed her head against Kirk's chest. He held her close. There were no more questions in his mind. No more uncertainties. Time was slipping too quickly through his fingers. He would not let this chance slip through as well. In Paris at the Vulcan Science Academy, Kirk and McCoy are in Spock's quarters, discussing Kirk's plans to quit Starfleet and depart with Talani. Bones and Spock question his judgment. McCoy points out Talani is young enough to be Kirk's granddaughter. Starfleet has already decided to give the next Enterprise to Captain Harriman, not Kirk. He says, Kirk's just running away. Spock amazingly agrees with everything the doctor is saying. He also says, based on what Kirk has told them, his decision is uncharacteristic. Kirk knows he can't tell them the whole truth about the planet's secret of eternal youth, until he confirms that it actually exists. They part company at odds when Kirk tells them he has made up his mind and leaves. Later at the San Francisco travel port, Kirk is in civilian clothes and no longer a member of Starfleet. He is wrestling with doubts as to his new life's direction. He meets Talani, who is all hugs and kisses. They depart in Talani's sweet-looking silver yacht. Kirk asks if her ship is as impressive as her yacht. She says, oh yes, or so she is told. As they approach Talani's ship, they can see she's the Enterprise. The Federation gave the Enterprise to her people as a goodwill gesture. Talani says she is the first ship of the Chow Planetary Defense Group, and she is giving it to Kirk. Kirk thinks to himself that he has the Enterprise back again. He is afraid, because for this he might do anything. Once on the bridge, Talani tells Kirk that Starfleet downgraded her systems before they turned them over to her. No real weapons, unless you count the tractor beam and navigational deflectors. Starfleet comm gear has been replaced with civilian gear. Sensors have only 50% of their original capabilities. Kirk can feel the warp drive engines vibrating like they always have. Without looking, Kirk touched the control that opened a line to the engine room. Kirk to engineering. Scotty here, Captain. Mr. Scott, I thought you had retired. Aye, so did I, but t'was the last tale, Annie. Starfleet put her in touch with me, and she told me what it was she was planning to do with the Enterprise. I figured if the time wasn't quite right for the old girl to retire, then it wasn't quite right for me either. The Scotsman is working his magic, just as he always has. Kirk orders Helm to lay in a course for Chal, Warp Factor 1. Meanwhile, at Admiral Drake's home, 
Sulu, Chekhov, and Ohura are there to brief the Admiral on recent events. They are in Drake's Den, which looks like a museum dedicated to the history of war. Chekhov comments on it, and Drake says he has all this to remind him of the horror of war and to make sure that it never happens again. No one seems convinced. Drake says he's been reading the report on the Chaj Kume, which translates means Klingon doomsday weapon. It was only intended to be used if the Empire was totally defeated by their enemies. The current peace process between the Federation and the Klingon Empire could be put at risk if word gets out a rogue agent like Jade may be putting it on the open market. That is why he is asking the three to join a top-secret intelligence operation he is putting together. Drake asks two yet-unseen people to come out. Spock and McCoy emerge from an adjoining room. With a team of five assembled, Drake tells them Admiral Carpwright and his co-conspirators are just the tip of the iceberg. A cabal of senior Starfleet officers still remain who will stop at nothing to prevent the peace process from being successful. Drake goes on to say if Jade is working for them, they could use the Doomsday device to lay waste to Vulcan or even Earth, which would trigger a war that no one wants. He wants them for this mission because he says he has evidence that James Kirk is connected to the Cabal, and he has already launched on his mission to somehow make use of the weapon. Drake shows them images of Kirk and Talani in a passionate kiss before departing for Earth. Spock and McCoy tell them her name and that she is a high-ranking official for the Chal. Spock shows a map of the disputed border region between the Klingon and Romulan empires. He says it is logical to assume its remote location made it the perfect place for developing extremely dangerous weapons. None of them believe Kirk is a traitor, but Drake tells them about Kirk getting the Enterprise back and likely using her as the delivery mechanism of the Doomsday weapon. He wants the team to take the Excelsior and track the Enterprise to Chal. They are to return with the weapon and Kirk, alive if possible. Drake dismisses them. The five leave, but Chekhov notices a security field went up after his door closed. Chekhov wonders why the Admiral would have that in his own house. What secrets is he protecting? In Drake's office, Agent Jade emerges from a hidden room, saying she should have killed Chekhov and Uhura in that cargo bay when she got rid of court. She kisses her father on the cheek, and Drake calls her Ariadne. Drake says no. With their new mission, they are fitting well into their larger plan. Spock and the others will lead them to Chal and get the weapon from them. They are dedicated Starfleet officers. Drake explains it was he who convinced Talani to approach Kirk, to help her world. Starfleet could not intervene directly, but the Enterprise and Kirk's experience could help the colonists build a defense force to counter Chal's enemies. When Kirk realizes he has been used to find the, the Chalche Kome for them, Drake will toss him aside like debris on the waves of history. Drake says he will be there to see Kirk's face when it happens. 
Later on Prestor 5, a bleak backwater Klingon planet that is the Enterprise's first stop to acquire supplies and special equipment. Kirk and Scotty are having a drink. Kirk asks about the engine upgrades, but Scotty says the disruptor cannons he has just installed are far more interesting. Kirk is shocked. Disruptors on the Enterprise? Scotty rattles off a long list of Klingon equipment being installed that is replacing the hardware Starfleet removed when she was decommissioned. He conjectures Talani knows more about what to expect than they do. She eventually joins them and gives Kirk the obligatory passionate kiss. Kirk asks her who she intends to use all the weaponry against. Talani says hopefully no one. She says the fact that an armed ship is in play should be enough to get the anarchists to the negotiations table and agree not to tell the galaxy what Chal has to offer, as they threaten to do. Later they arrive at Chal and take Talani's yacht down. Kirk can see that Chal is an unusually beautiful world. He truly understands why it's named Chal, Klingon for Heaven. On approach for landing, they see Chal's first and only city, population 1,000. Talani describes how it really is heaven. Little work is required of its citizens. Given the abundance of naturally growing food, the buildings and technology is mostly self-repairing, so there is minimal maintenance and service labor needed. As Kirk breathes the air and tests out the slightly lower gravity of this new world, he feels things are so right for him here. Talani is a big part of it. After a life of questioning everything, does he finally have the answers? The next day, Kirk and Talani are on the beach riding horse-like animals and generally enjoying paradise. Kirk says he can see why Talani does not want the outside world to know about Chal. There would be overpopulation and beach-to-beach hotels in no time. Kirk says he feels more alive, more youthful than he has felt in years. Talani says that is part of the secret of Chal, eternal youth. Chal warns Kirk that despite appearances, there is danger all around them. Kirk demands to know who her enemies are. Just then, the sound of explosions come from the city. They turn and see the explosions in the air. Talani says, it's the anarchists, the old ones, our parents. Kirk is shocked. Kirk runs to his horse and pulls out his communicator. He hails Scotty on the Enterprise. Elsewhere, the Excelsior is in orbit around Prestor 5, investigating the Enterprise's recent stop there. Spock, Chekhov, and McCoy are on the surface, moving through the city, looking for answers. They enter a bar that has an unsettling collection of ears nailed to the wall over the bar. They sit down at a table. A mature Klingon lady comes to their table to offer them all-you-can-eat gach. Chekhov pays in talons rather than Federation credits to show they are not tourists. Chekhov says they need an armed ship to fight off their competition near frontier border crossings. The barmaid suggests maybe a bird of prey. Chekhov says they are Orions. We need something bigger. Say, a starship in private hands. They heard of one passing through recently. Chekhov pays the barmaid. And she says a ship like that just passed through here on the way to Delston 3. 
she describes Scotty, Kirk, and Talani saying they were in this very bar. McCoy says the description sounds like Scotty, which gets the barmaid suspicious. How would smugglers know ex-Starfleet people? She grabs Chekhov and throws him into their table. Spock gives her a Vulcan neck pinch, and they beam back to the Excelsior. To be continued. Fight, fight, fight. Yes. But uh, thank gosh Spock is there to bring down that uh, Klingon female, because she's a big one. Right. Doesn't she have a tattoo? or A tattoo? Uh, never um, mind, that was something else I watched. Uh, I'll tell you what is a tattoo. Talani's silvery uh, starship. Or a little little yacht, which looks suspiciously like uh, uh, like Padme's. Oh, with it being all silvery, all silvery and stuff. Yeah, but this predates Padme's. Well, makes you wonder because it does kind of look like Padme's, except it's got tattoos. It has uh, registrations and stuff. Yes, in Klingon, of course. Is it Klingon or is it Chow? Well, maybe it's a combination of Klingon and Romulan. Right. But back to this uh, this lady, the, the, the mean one, the bar the bartender, mm-hmm. waitress, whatever she is. Mm-hmm. Uh, who whacks her with that chair? I don't remember being whacked with a chair. Let On me... page 46, before Spock does the nerve pinch, it just shows her getting hit upside the head with the back of a chair. And it's the chair is made up of all these little bars. Oh, I guess it's McCoy, because in the next panel it shows McCoy staying in there. Yeah. So. She... Yeah, okay, so, right, good point. So, Chekhov gets put in a headlock. Oh, and then, okay, good point. So then McCoy goes ahead and breaks her hold on him. Or maybe he does throw him down. Yeah, I don't think McCoy's attack did much. Yeah, I don't think it did. But it, I, I, it's just a weird-looking chair, because it doesn't look like there's any support. It just, like, it's just a bunch of Sticks. bars that are somehow held together with no visible, visible means, means of support. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. That, that's really what I wanted to talk about, not necessarily who was doing it. Right. So what do you think of the uh, the creatures that they're riding, uh, Kirk oh. and Talani there on the beach? Uh, you know... They're supposed to be horses, but alien horses. So, what, they got horns and stuff? Yeah, they actually look like, like gazelles or something. Right. Because their, face, their faces don't even look like horses. It's not even like that purple unicorn that was in Star Trek V. <laughs> <laughs> the face of a gazelle on the body of a horse. Yeah. Yeah, and it has those uh, interesting sharp horns, two of right. them. Right. You would not want that thing to rear back and you to pitch forward. No, 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 no. Very good point. Yeah, you wouldn't want to, you, you wouldn't want to go over the top. That would hurt. <laughs> but it's paradise. I'm sure that never happens. Yeah, it never happens. So I like the Century 24 sign in the front yard of the Kirk family uh, yard. You didn't think that was cheesy? I thought it, I thought it was clever if a tad obvious. I didn't think it was cheesy. Yeah. But you do like the word cheesy. So. I know. I know. Some maybe I misuse it, but I thought it was kind of funny. Uh, yeah, but you know, kind of obvious. <laughs> and besides, so what do they do? I mean, you notice that they were careful to say 
transfer ownership. Right. Um, and so is that because nobody has money on the, you know, paradise earth or what? Right, right. Yeah. So you transfer ownership. You figure out who gets the house to transfer ownership to because there's no money. So, hmm. yeah, it doesn't make sense. Well, I mean, it's nice. However, that however all that works. And yet, <laughs> earlier in this issue, we had people walking around with a big case full of credits. So, right. Well, they're not on Earth, though. Right. I guess so. Yeah. As we it's know not- from our Ferengi friends, profit is still alive and well, even in the future. True. So I kind of like Kirk's uh, civilian suit, which he's wearing when they land. You know, it's mostly like uh, dark blue, navy blue, whatever. Or is it like, no, it's mostly light blue. And then there's like a vertical black section on the left side of the suit jacket. That's kind of interesting looking. It's different. Yeah. Kind of cool. Looking swank. Right. So I thought they made that, uh, that barmaid on Prester 4 really ugly. I mean, ooh, my gosh. Uh, which they tend to do with some Klingon women. Uh, but, man, she's really nasty. Um, but she has the cleavage. Oh, she's got a lot of everything when it comes to body parts. <laughs> she's a big lady, big lady. At one point, I kind of got the impression by the look on her face when she was talking to Chekhov that she might have had a little thing for Chekhov a little bit. Uh, which reminded me of that uh, that Taw's Gamesters of Triskelion episode, where Chekhov again captured the uh, a large lady's fancy. Huh. I don't. I didn't catch that when I was reading it. Yeah, I, I got a little bit of that uh, when they were talking, and she was looking down at him. Well, are you talking about the part where she's putting that credit chip that he gave her in her? Well, she's not wearing a. I think bra, it's before that. She's not really hiding the. In a bra, but it looks like she's no, sticking it in between her cleavage. Well, yeah, it, yeah. So it goes actually beneath her cleavage, right. like into in like her belly, because right. part part of her dress or whatever. There's like a wraparound thing across her her stomach. Right. So that's where she keeps her credit chips, her tips. Exactly. We don't want people to get their hands on that. Oh no, safekeeping around my gut. <laughs> <laughs> uh, actually, it was before he paid her. Okay. I think. Oh no, no, no! He paid her. That's right. Oh, yeah. So just after he paid her, right, and just says he's she's dropping it, and that's exactly the part I'm talking about. Okay. Now maybe it's just because he gave her money, so it's like, oh, well, hey, money. Right. I'll give you a smile, youngin. Right. There is one huge mistake on that page. What is it? That big steaming pile of gach. Should As be white. Every Klingon knows gach is. You would never cook gawk. It's best raw and wiggly. Well, okay. So, okay, so so definitely there's stuff coming from the top of it like it is cooked. So do you know it's cooked? Uh, no, and I don't know if it's gawk either. I'm just trying to be funny. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> no, I mean... It's like gawk to me. Only I thought gawk was like pale, not, not pink. Right. But I could be wrong about that. And there are... I mean, obviously, there's aliens there, so it wouldn't necessarily have to be gunk. Right. And, you know, I'm being a little speciest if I think that just because you're Klingon, you have to eat gunk. I mean, that's... They do like gunk. Not all of them. Gunk. It's it's a matter of taste. (laughs) Come on. All Vulcans like Plumique's soup. 
and all Klingons like Gach. Don't be, don't be stereotypical. Okay, Donovan. So at this point in the story where Chal is being played up as a source of eternal youth like, uh, like Baku was in Insurrection, right? the Insurrection movie, Kirk even feels young on the beach. So this is... Uh, and then Tal- Talani says, this place has the effect on people, uh, which, you know, so it's fond of youth, and she's lived on the planet her entire life. So it's like... Just remember all this stuff later in the later in the story, right? This 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 story has a lot of elements that got reused in Insurrection and also I think in Star Trek Into Darkness. So, oh, I mean, hmm. I agree completely agree with Insurrection. But, uh, I mean, let's just darkness. let's just take what we've seen so far. So on okay. page thirty four and thirty five, you have the head of Starfleet. Oh, right there with his little models. In this one, he actually picks yeah. it up and kind of plays with it. But yeah. in In the Darkness, Marcus had a Good very nice set of little models, and he didn't play Including with including the vengeance, <laughs> right? But I'm just saying, I, I saw a lot of Marcus in uh, Drake here. Yeah, that's a good point. I did that did not even occur to me. And maybe he's uh, being a little secretive, you know, with his daughter. Right. Who's not Carol Marcus, but uh, Jade. Anyways. Oh, yeah, yeah. I saw, <laughs> gotcha. Yeah, right. I right. saw a lot of similarities uh, in, in this story with those two movies. Insurrection that's that's a very good idea. That's a very good parallel. Didn't think of that. Didn't notice it. So, one of my favorite parts in the book, both when I read it, you know, 25 years ago, whenever it came out, and when I listened to it the other day, was when Kirk and Scotty are at the bar. Scotty poured the last of the blue beer from the copper pitcher. Something thick and green plopped out of the pitcher and into his glass. Scotty eyed it warily, but it didn't move on its own. He upended his glass and bravely swallowed the thick green sludge. Kirk flinched. Scotty, how could you? Trust me, Captain. There is nothing that could be alive in a brew as foul as this one. The surly Klingon bartender lumbered over to Kirk's table with another battered copper pitcher of blue beer. She said any customer who ate the green sludge got a free pitcher. It was house policy. Scotty asked politely, What exactly is the green sludge? The bartender gaped at Scotty in admiration. You don't know? Scotty shook his head. The bartender erupted with a bone-chilling howl of Klingon laughter and whomped him on the back, then went back to her bar. And then Talani comes up later and... She reached out to pour herself a glass of beer. Scotty held out a cautioning hand. Careful of the sludge, lass. I know. If you accidentally eat any of it, they have to give you a free pitcher to help dredge the worms out of your system. Kirk was impressed by how quickly the color drained from Scotty's face. The engineer quickly excused himself. (laughs) <laughs> hilarious and I, I yeah. really regret that they didn't put that in the comic yeah that's too bad they didn't have room for it and then he had to excuse himself right but here he has to sit there while they're making out and he has to kind of look the other way roll his eyes yeah I'd rather him excuse himself to go vomit yeah <laughs> than be the third wheel exactly it was interesting how they had the whole scene with uh, Kirk, Spock and McCoy at the Vulcan Science Academy because that's not in the audiobook at all. 
Right. The, the audiobook is also a bridge, so. Yeah. So that could have been in the original one. Yeah. The, it the was. real novel. Oh, it was? Okay. Yeah. Now, personally, I like it. Because I really did not like the idea of Kirk taking off for this new life, this new adventure, whatever, without seeing his friends again. I thought seeing this and then thinking back to the audiobook, it just seemed like that was missing. It didn't. That didn't make sense. Right. So. Yeah. No, that's a good scene. Good to hear that's in the uh, novel. Right. There's there's quite a bit in the novel that's that's not in either one of these. Yeah. So I think if you get both of these, then I think you get a pretty good feel for what was in the book. Cool. As I recall it, because, again, it was you know, 1995 when I read them. Right. Well, that's all I have to say about this one. Okay. Starting on page 47. Back on Chow, Talani and Kirk have beamed away from the beach, leaving their horned horses behind. They have materialized next to Talani's shuttle. The bombardment from the anarchists is still underway. Kirk contacts Scotty again, and they get a tricorder and some clothing beamed down to them. The tricorder is linked to the Enterprise's limited sensors. The device shows where the attackers are shooting their mortars from. Kirk orders Scotty to fire a low-powered disruptor beam at those locations to stun the attackers. Scotty does so, and the explosions soon stop. Scotty is not happy with turning the Enterprise into a gunship, and he requests a one-on-one with his former captain. Kirk beams up to the Enterprise, and he and Scotty have a little heart-to-heart. Kirk tells Scotty of the rejuvenating powers on Chow. Scotty does not believe it. He tells him that they both had their youth, and they spent it well. They come to an agreement that the Enterprise will be used only in defending Chow's orbit and will no longer be used for any type of planetary bombardments. Meanwhile, the Excelsior is on the trail of the Enterprise. A tactical checkoff confirmed the distortion pattern. It's the Enterprise's warp signature. The helmsman asked if he should lay in a course to match the new trail. Sulu smiled knowingly. Negative. If I know Captain Kirk, we should find at least three warp trails from this location. In the end, they found four. Kirk had looped back three times to muddy the subspace waters laying false trails. Spock confirmed the method behind Kirk's evasive maneuvers. It is a feint he has used in chess many times to hide the true focus of attack through misdirection. Logically, we should choose the trail that leads away from the obvious choice. Spock gave the bearing. The Excelsior smoothly stretched into the infinite realms of warp speed. Just then, three Klingon battlecruisers appear and they surround the Federation ship. Sulu informs the Klingons that they have permission from the Klingon Council to be there. They do not listen and they open fire with photon torpedoes. Sulu uses a quick move to swoop underneath one of the ships and it takes the full impact of the torpedoes that were heading towards the Excelsior. It blows up in a blaze of glory. Before the other two Klingon ships can start to attack again, a Federation shuttle traveling at warp 10 appears. The design of this little craft is reminiscent to the shuttle Spock used in Star Trek The Motion Picture, except for this one has three nacelles. The occupants of the craft are none other than Admiral Drake and a helmeted pilot. 
Drake contacts Sulu and the Klingons and orders them to cease fire. He relays some pre-recorded message to the Klingons that supposedly proves that the Excelsior has permission to be there. Drake closes the communication. Then, the helmeted pilot lifts her helmet, and it turns out to be Jade. She tells her father to watch out for Sulu. Drake assures her that he can handle any of Kirk's old friends, and he beams over to the larger vessel. Meanwhile, back on Chow, night has fallen, and Kirk is leading a small force into the location of the anarchist's camp. They spring into action, and take most of them down without much trouble. One of the attackers happens to catch Kirk by surprise, and he fires. Kirk is amazed that the shot seems to bend around him and fly past him. He quickly knocks out the man, and then thinks that Talani tugged at his collar right before the battle, and she did the same thing to her garment in the farmhouse right before she got shot in the shoulder. Something does not add up. He orders a beam-up for himself and the unconscious Chow. In the Enterprise brig, Kirk is questioning the man. The prisoner tells Kirk that he does not want to sell Chow to the highest bidder, like Talani saying. He wants to bury it so that Chow cannot be used by any empire. Kirk does not understand. The prisoner then dares Kirk to go back to the planet and check out the armory, which is the domed building in the town's center. Suddenly, the brig doors open up, and Talani and two guards enter. The two guards fire at the prisoner, and they strike him through the force field. They also hit Kirk, and he blacks out. When James Kirk woke, he felt a cool cloth press against his forehead. A face hovered close to his, tail on his. He rolled off the bed, pushing his way through the filmy gauze that hung around him. He was in tail on his house. He stood naked on the cool, tiled floors. He moved his arms and shoulders. No trace of any injury from the disruptor stun. Daylani slipped off the bed, wearing only a wrap of fabric as transparent as the gauze around the bed. His heart ached more than he could bear. But Daylani was the enemy now. Where are my clothes? She smiled playfully, oblivious to his mood. Come to bed, James. I want to see if you've fully recovered. But Kirk turned from her went to a wooden chest. Inside were his civilian clothes from Earth. He began to put them on. Delaney, the attackers at the farm, they were your people, not anarchists. Delaney moved closer to Kirk, slipped her arms around him. How could they be? They tried to kill you. He twisted away from her. The game's over. They couldn't kill me. He tore at the collar of the jumpsuit, ripped out the silver coil of metal hidden in it. Some sort of force field emitter, isn't it? Diverts the projectiles. Taylani stood her ground. But James, at the farm, you saw me get shot. I saw you tug on your collar just as you turned your back to the window in the kitchen. A second later, the shot grazed your shoulder. James, you don't have to think about this. The anarchist's threat has ended. The anarchist in the brig was shot by the same two child who were at the farm. You must have some innate Vulcan abilities on your Romulan side. Meditative control of the autonomic system. Is that it? Makes your heart stop for a few minutes to fool the human into helping out? Kirk reached out to touch her face. I can see now how well you played me. First you threw yourself at me, but I said no. So a minute later we were running for our lives, fighting side by side. And then you offered me a challenge, 
when I didn't have one. You offered me a chance to save your world. That's my job, Taylor. I mean, that's what I do, who I am. I couldn't refuse you, and you knew it. Taylani raised her voice. I want to hear you say you don't love me. Kirk didn't take his eyes from hers. I love my work. Taylani slapped him. Her Klingon nails raked his cheek. A chirp comes from Kirk's belt. Kirk pulls out his communicator to speak with Scotty. Scotty informs him that there is a group of ships on their way. Kirk requests one for beam up. As he's dematerializing, Talani rushes and grabs him so that she's pulled along with him. On the Enterprise Bridge, the ships are identified as the Excelsior and two Klingon ships. Sulu contacts Kirk through the communicator, but he is quickly replaced with Drake. And Drake tells Kirk how he knows Kirk is hiding the superweapon. Kirk orders the Enterprise to speed away, even dipping into Chow's atmosphere. The Klingons are quick to follow, and Kirk orders them to come about and fire their disruptors. The Klingons, unaccustomed to disruptor attacks, explodes in a ball of fire. Drake orders the Excelsior to fire on Kirk. Kirk points out that Drake is in violation of federal law, firing on a sovereign government. Spock and Sulu agree with Kirk, and they relieve Drake from command. They take the Excelsior away so that they can hold a formal inquiry. Once gone, Kirk tells Talani that the two of them need to beam down into the armory and find out what is there, together. And they lean in for a passionate smooch. All right. Lots of passionate kisses. Yep. So all With Talani, Talani the 20-year-old, and old Kirk. I just find it funny that Kirk forgives her so fast. I mean, yeah. Well. All they did was they destroyed a Klingon vessel. And then suddenly now, all's forgiven. Let's go down and find out what's going on. <laughs> They're getting to the truth, damn it. Anyways. And it's moving the narrative along, so there you go. So we haven't really talked about it, but what do you think of the artwork in general? I think it's fine. I think it's fine. I, you know, Kirk goes between looking too young and looking okay. Looking appropriate. Right. Um, I think some of the, the drawings of Scotty are, are good. Quite good. Um, ships look pretty good. What do you think? I like it for the most part. I think everybody looks pretty good. Just every once in a while, Kirk looks more like, you know, the $6 million man or somebody yeah. other than... Lee Majors. Yeah. Yeah. It, it kind of it throws me off because, you know, sometimes he just does not look like William Shatner. Yeah. And he seems to be really the only one that switches. Maybe because he has so much screen time, but yeah. I mean, all the other cast always look like the actors, I thought. Yeah. Yeah, there are some lapses. Yeah. And the ships look good, and the explosions look good, so... Although, speaking of how the ships look, I got a comment on that. What was that warp pulse thing that Sulu did? To kind of swoop underneath? Yeah. It's like, yeah. What? <laughs> what? So the way they've got it drawn, for those of you that may not have a comic, is it's a single cell, a single panel, and the enter- one minute the Enterprise is between three different ships firing on them, and the next minute there's like a rainbow effect where the Enterprise apparently, at incredible speed, went down 
and forward and back up again, kind of like forming a rainbow uh, half circle, like a like a horseshoe or something. And it's like, what? What? Huh? I mean, and it's the Excelsior, not not the Enterprise. Oh, sorry, you're right, the Excelsior. So it's like what? Now, now uh, I guess there's an asterisk. I see an asterisk there talking about prepare for warp, warp pulse on my mark. So there's a little asterisk there. But I no, have that's a, not an asterisk. That's a quote. That's that's super. well. Where's the close quote then? There's no close quote. Well, if 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 the paragraph's not finished, they don't have to do the close quote until until the well, third the third the third balloon has the close quote mark. Okay. Super engineering. Okay. Prepare well. On my but, mark. Uh, mark. But that's BS because look at Mark. Mark's got its own quotes. I know. I mean, uh, that's, that's quotes. the end of the sentence or the, the paragraph. Uh, it, it, I don't buy it. It's just it. it it's comic. The, the quotes are not good. It's the comic. It's 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 how comic books are done. Okay. Look, look at all of them. Like you'll see the you'll see a box like on the the previous oh, page, okay. page fifty two. Chekhov says, Kipton Sulu, the Enterprise of subspace, fake is disappeared again. Uh, no, no end of quote. And then the next panel has him still talking. There's nope, three. There's three left quotes, <laughs> and there's two. And there's one right quote. Why do they have another set of quotes in front of the middle sentence? Prepare for war pulse on my mark. Yeah, I Why? get what you're saying, but usually they don't. You're saying do that's the a rule. Quotes if the if the dialogue is continuing. Well, but, to well okay, that's fine. I'll, I'll buy that. But why do they have the extraneous forward quotes then? Opening quotes. They just do. They got three compared to one ending quote. Anyway, the main point is, there's no explanation that I see in this book talking about the warp pulse. No. It's just something they do. And why it has to leapfrog underneath. Exactly. I mean, if what you're doing is doing a really micro engagement of warp, so small that you're still in, in range of everybody else, but you're just past them, then go in a straight line up. I mean, you got three dimensions, right? Uh, th- this doesn't... The way they drew it, the way they depicted it, it just doesn't make any sense. Now, the original series, and I haven't seen the, old, the older special effects version, right? Uh, but uh, I think they had episodes called The Enterprise Incident. Is that the one where they go to Romulus and steal a cloaking device? It is. So, at the end of that episode, they get surrounded by Romulan ships. Um, and I don't know how it looks in the um, original version, but I did watch the redone, you one. Know, the redone one just the other day. And it does a very similar thing to this to, to get away. It just kind of like, they're surrounded, and then it just kind of like goes over and then back, back down over the one of the ships that was surrounding it and somehow they get away with that so I, that's what i was thinking he was doing Wh- whatever they did there in the enterprise incident well but yeah it doesn't make sense yeah. i mean if you're surrounding somebody you know surely you're not surrounding them on a, on a level plane when you're in well you shouldn't be but that's usually the way that they depict things that's why in Wrath of Khan they said, well, we can think in three dimensions. It's like, well, la-di-da on you. You're in space. Why shouldn't everybody be doing that? But whatever. That's why Khan, that's, that was Khan's downfall, because they didn't have that in the 1990s. When he was frozen. Yes. He, he doesn't have much experience in space, just fighting wars. 
on planets. Anyway, the main thing is it just looks dumb, in my opinion. But what? It, it's the way they chose to depict it. And it'd be nice if they would have explained something, but you know they didn't. But right. that's fine. Yes, and I'm the not... quotes are all wrong. <laughs> the, the quotes are okay, but I agree with it. <laughs> What I uh-huh. what I don't agree with is that the one photon torpedo that hits the Klingon ship instead of the Excelsior yeah. completely destroys the the Klingon battle yes. cruiser. Okay, so so we're moving on from from drawing and artistry to some of the nits. I you're complaining about that, I assume. I thought you were complaining about the little subspace move. Oh, I was. I'm complaining about what the outcome of that subspace. And I agree. Well, I agree with that, too. And they do that multiple times in this book. Where they, ooh, the shields have to be fine-tuned for the kind of weaponry or munitions that are going oh, yeah, to get that, it. Uh, yeah, when, when Kirk, Kirk take down, takes down the other one just because the it's Enterprise same thing. has disruptors. Exactly. So they weren't, oh, they were expecting us to fire phasers, but we fired disruptors. Ha <laughs> ha, and their shields weren't ready for that. It's like, give me a break. Okay. So if you want to fine-tune it to make it even more effective uh, against one particular weapon, that's fine. But really, is it going to make the shields not work, well, pretty much at all at for all. other types? I mean, ah! Well, right. what about photon torpedoes and uh, phasers, then? Right. You know? Yeah, I mean, a photon torpedo is a photon torpedo. I haven't heard of a, you know, disruptor version and a, pla- a phaser version, so... Yeah. This one guy gets hit with one photon torpedo and he blows up. Yeah. It was silly. Yeah, I I didn't like that bit of it. But one thing I do I, I do like the Klingon ship blowing up. I mean it looks kinda good. The oh, drawing. it looks awesome. And that but another thing I kinda like is directly beneath that panel is Peter Troughton making a guest appearance in the comic book. <laughs> Peter or Patrick? Or Patrick Troughton, sorry. Patrick Troughton making a guest appearance in Sulu's uniform. Yeah, so Sulu looks a little uh, like the second Doctor from Doctor Who. <laughs> Only skinny. Yeah. And slightly Asian. And slightly... <laughs> slightly Asian, yes. Uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't look that Asian in that drawing, but he does look like Patrick Troughton. I would not have thought of that, but you pointing it out, I can kind of see it with the <laughs> It just it just it struck me. So, also on that page, what did you think of Drake's shuttle? I thought it was great bringing back uh, Spock's shuttle from uh, Star Trek Motion Picture. Except this one can go at warp 10. Yeah. Well, is that because... So, did Spock's original one have th- what might be three nacelles? I think it only had two. I thought so, too. Also. Right. So, so this is a Jedi sled kind of thing, where you know you got the warp sled or something, and then the the module pops off and does the same kind of flippy thing to uh, dock with the Excelsior. Well, we don't know. Oh yeah, yeah. It well, does show, they show it. It does show it. Yeah. yeah. So I thought I thought it was kind of that was unexpected blast from the past. Right. It looks cool. Just. I, I didn't like the, all the comments about it going warped hidden, and they didn't jump out at salamanders. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's good. 
And what does it say? Golden Hind? Golden Hind. Is that Where does it say that? Hind? Hind? On the front of the uh, shuttle. Oh. So NCC-10019, and then it says Golden H-I-N-D. Right, Hind. Is that Hind like in Hind Quarters, or what? <laughs> Maybe. I, do, I just don't know what that reference is. I don't either. <laughs> yep. So, it was nice that they dusted off Spock Shuttle. Yeah. yeah. And brought it into this. That's nice. Yep. And, um... I think my last comment here is that the well, I got two comments. One, the the shield in their clothing that somehow warps phaser fire around you so that you don't get hit. Oh, projectile fire. Is it projectiles? Okay, so it's I just projectiles. projectiles. Yeah. Okay. So why doesn't everybody wear that? Because nobody uses projectiles anymore. They use projectile weapons so often in this this book. It's like, okay. Mm. I mean, how many times do you remember them them using projectile weapons in a Star Trek story? Yeah, never. Yeah, right. Alright, so it's just projectiles. So, if he would have gotten hit by that sled, would it have just bounced off too? (laughs) No, but it's all part of the plan. (laughs) To make him feel like the hero, I guess. Whatever. I I, I would have just been pissed with it right then. Like you said, oh, all's forgiven. Yeah, I agree. And my last one is how did those how did those two chow shoot the the prisoner through the force field in the brig? So good question. Maybe they're force field bars. And you can shoot between the force field bars because they're using projectors. But it looks like disrupt. It looks like Klingon pro- disruptors. So you can't no, give meant, me the BS about it. No, being... I, meant, no I, I meant I meant force field bars. You know, so it's oh, open between the bars. Bar. That's that's what I'm trying to say. We've seen the brig. It's not. I know. I agree with you. I agree with you. Mm. All right. Any other things to say? Um, yes, I have two, actually, that I'll wrap up. I thought it was interesting at first, when, on page 53, when Sula refers to Chancellor Astaburr as being a woman, that Chancellor Astaburr herself gave us permission to be in this part of space. At first, I was thinking, oh, that's strange to have a female Klingon leader. I mean, Klingons are all men, 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 and, uh... And then I recall, oh, yeah, right, she's the daughter of Gorkhan. Okay, fine. So so when Chancellor Gorkhan was assassinated in Star Trek VI, she became the Chancellor. So, okay, fine. At first I thought it was weird, but then I'm like, okay, it's got precedent from the sixth movie. Okay. Right. Yep. And then the last thing I have to say is, I don't remember the audiobook having the part about Scotty wanting to talk to, Tur- to Kirk about uh, not using the Enterprise as a gunboat to solve civil conflicts. Right. No, that's I don't remember that being in the audiobook at all. It was cut out. Yeah. But that was in the novel, probably? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Right. And also, what was uh, different from the 
novel to this was when Kirk wakes up from being stunned in the brig. The novel maybe goes into a lot of detail about how much clothing Talani's not wearing. And Kirk. They're both supposed to be butt naked there. Right. So this was the part where I um, was curious to see how they handled it in, in the uh, in the comic book. And it's nice to see that they're wearing pajamas. <laughs> yes, especially Kirk. Don't well, care about don't care about Talani. That's fine with me. But Kirk, keep him clothed. He's pretty fit here. He looks he looks. Uh, I mean the uh, the wonders of Chow is doing wonders on him right there. Uh huh. The wonders of a good penciler. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I don't really like that uh, you can just jump on somebody as they're beaming away, and then you go along with them. Yeah, and they keep you that, separate. Yeah, I know that they did it in Star Trek Four, but yeah, I think if you do that when you show up on the transporter pad, you should be like. You know, uh, like in the fly from the fly, yeah, <laughs> a merged hybrid of the two, right? Anyways, then it wouldn't be a happy ending. Come on, you gotta admit, I, I knew who Seth Brundle was. Did you? I I didn't. I figure you were going to go to the fly, but I didn't know for sure. Yep, and I certainly do remember the name. Right, that's the. Uh, the Jeff Goldblum fly. I don't know what his name was. As opposed to the David Hedison fly? Was that his name in the Vincent Price show? Uh, uh, that's the actor. Right. David Hedison. Also, Captain Crane of Voyage by the Bottom of the Sea fame was the scientist. Oh, cool. Yeah. Did not know that. Yeah. Good classic movie. All right. Well, you're uh, Especially to... at the end. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. At the end, when uh, when the fly, the body of the fly and the head of David Hedison is going, stuck, trapped in the uh, spider web, it's going. Help me! Help me! And then it's don't, creepy. Don't, don't those old? Didn't the guy that saw him squish him? Yep. Yeah. And that that was like the cop or something. Right. Anyway, enough of that. All right. Shall we go to page 70? Please. <laughs> 71 to 94. Rock on. All right. So we're going to finish it off here. So Take it home. Yeah. So this part of the story starts uh, on the Excelsior. Uh, they have gone some sort of distance away from Chow. The senior staff are in the briefing room, and they're going to start the formal inquiry. Drake arrives, and he tells them that it's not going to be necessary. He sees the error of his ways. He's going to go contact the Federation president and the Klingon chancellor, and they're going to get some very precise, straight orders. He then leaves the room, and the former Enterprise staff can only stare at each other and speculate on what the heck is happening. Meanwhile, on Chow, Kirk and Talani have beamed down into the domed building. They are in complete darkness for a moment, and then suddenly the lights start blazing on. They find a huge Romulan bird of prey hanging over their heads. The room is filled with displays and dioramas about the purpose of Chow. 
The Chow people were designed as a race that could repopulate the Empire if the Federation was ever to win and wipe them out. The Chow were genetically created using the DNA from Romulans and Klingons. Then, they were enhanced even further using the organs and tissues pulled from captured humans. Talani is appalled by all of this. That she could be the byproduct of such savagery. Kirk assures her that it is not her fault. Suddenly, Jade, a.k.a. Adrian Drake, appears and she holds her phaser at Kirk. She tells Talani that she is just cattle and that the Federation is here now to claim them. She tries to convince Talani that Kirk knew about this all along. Talani does not believe her, and when Kirk asks her to stop her heart, she does so, and the lights then go out. Kirk pulls his disruptor and fires at all the consoles, destroying the data to recreate the Chow people. When Talani wakes up, the lights return on. Drake and several Klingons then appear. Drake tries to turn Kirk against Talani now, pointing out that Talani was always using Kirk. Kirk seems okay with this since he knows that they are both deeply in love with each other now. He then taps on his coat and they disappear just as Drake fires his phaser at him. On the Enterprise, Kirk is surprised that the bridge is now full with his old crew. The Excelsior had arrived following Drake and the Klingon ship back to Chow. Suddenly, the Enterprise starts to take a beating from the Klingon ship that's also in orbit. Drake opens communications and he gloats that Kirk lost the day that he arrived on Chow. And then they warp towards the sun. Kirk and Sulu both agree that Drake must mean to slingshot around the sun and kill Kirk the day that he arrived on Chow. Sulu beams over to the Enterprise so that they can follow the Klingon ship into the sun. The Enterprise cannot perform the slingshot maneuver in its current condition, but they are able to catch up and fire on the Klingon ship with its disruptors. This causes the Klingons to veer off course, and they vanish into the sun. Kirk and Spock speculate that Drake's ship could have been destroyed, and if so, then it would have evaporated very quickly in this intense heat. Suddenly, the Enterprise starts to take a pounding again. This time, so close to the sun, its shields eventually give out. On the screen, Drake saw the Enterprise slowly turning in the pressure of the raging plasma currents. Father, why don't we finish him off? Another torpedo will overload his shields, then we can leave this place with a margin of safety. Drake nodded. Very well. Stand by on torpedo, but hail Kirk for me. I wanted to know who's responsible. The Enterprise is not responding. Her shields are fluctuating. She's gone into overload. Plasma sparks jumped along the Enterprise's nacelles. Ariadne kept up her calm commentary. There go her generators, emergency batteries coming online. They'll only be good for a few seconds. Structural integrity field is overcompensating. Hull breach. The saucer buckled. 
For a breathless moment, the bridge dome rose out of the saucer's center as the outer rim shattered like ice. Then the saucer tore itself apart like a starship made of sand, crushed by an unstoppable wave. In seconds, all that remained of the Enterprise was a river of sparkling, incandescent wreckage, flaring as the plasma reduced it to glowing, disassociated ions. Drake stumbled back to his chair. His uniform was drenched. It was over. Drake, on the Klingon bird of prey, is thrilled that his hated enemy is now dead. A Klingon officer informs Drake that the Excelsior has opened up a communication. Drake says that he does not want to hear from Sulu, but the Klingon then informs him that it is actually Kirk. Enraged, Drake opens the line and Kirk informs him that the Excelsior arrived and beamed over all the Enterprise crew just before it exploded. He also says that the Klingon ship cannot leave the area due to its damage. He requests that Drake lower the shields and beam over to the Excelsior. Drake refuses to listen, and he orders the ship to move. Once it does so, it explodes, just as Kirk had warned. Later, on a Chow beach, Kirk gives Talani the plaque from the Enterprise. He tells her goodbye, and he transports away. With tears rolling down her cheeks, Talani vows never to stop missing him. En route to Earth, Kirk asks McCoy and Spock if they had changed their opinion on him leaving for Chow in the first place. They both agree that they cannot. Spock then points out that Starfleet will now need a new commander-in-chief. Kirk laughs and says that it will never be him. As they enter Earth's orbit, they can see the Enterprise B in dry dock and preparing for its maiden voyage. And as Kirk walked away, he didn't know what the universe had in store for him next, or for how long his own journey would continue. But he knew, at last, he was ready to face it. Forever young. Dun, 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 dun. One of the things this this book cut out of the novel, which which I really always liked, was the uh, book ending scenes with Spock on Viridian with Kirk's body. All right. Yep, that's true. So fast forward to just after Generations. Right. And how they're dealing with uh, Kirk's body. And the wreckage of the Enterprise. Yep. So, I always really liked that part. I I liked that, you know, there's a lot of Spock thinking about Kirk moments. Right. And also, quite frankly, a little bit of a, um, dare I say, almost a kind of Easter kind of resurrection or something going on where the uh, body is removed and Spock has to, you know, use a flashlight and it's windy and he's going to see where his body is and it's gone. So I think there's a little bit of attempts to uh, have some kind of resurrection thing going on there. Well, the next book in the Shatnerverse was entitled The Return. (laughs) Exactly. But I never thought of a uh, you know a Jesus resurrection. I always yeah. I just I took it for what it was. 
He got beamed away, and the people be- doing the beaming have a way to resurrect him. I won't tell you who it is. Resistance <laughs> may be futile. <laughs> Spoiler for people that haven't read those books. <laughs> right. Which they're good. That the, the next one I really liked with yeah. uh, with Kirk actually in the 24th century and actually interacting with the people of that time. So dealing with the Next Generation staff or cast, which I always thought was you know a huge miss on Generations part. Yeah. So that was um, so he was young again, right? Nope. Same no. age. He's still old. Oh, okay. But enhanced with Borg Nanites. Hmm. Handy. Yep. It's good. It, it's actually a pretty good book. Give it a read. I think you can also get it um, on audiobook. Good, because I don't uh, usually have the time to do the novels much. Right. Cool. Well. So, uh, the destruction of Enterprise A. Very sad. Yes, it is. But... Another fine ship going down. Yet we know that it didn't blow up because we just read a comic book the other day set in the Next Generation timeline where Scotty was pulling phasers out of the wall that he had had hidden back in his day. Are you trying to say that there's continuity problems? don't understand. I, I don't understand. How could that be? Right. Well, this is the Shatnerverse, which is outside of uh, all other Star Trek canon. Oh, re- oh, hold on a second. So you're saying this is non-canon? Yeah, this is the Shatnerverse. <laughs> <laughs> I think the Shatnerverse is perfect. Is as valid as uh, some of the other stuff people pull out of their orifices in some <laughs> of these comics. Right. Now, th- this one, I think, fits in with, with pretty much any Star Trek canon. Yeah. With the exception of the Enterprise blowing up in other stories, it's still around. Right. And making up yet another Starfleet Academy pain in his butt. Drake, that is. Right, right. Yeah, I think, I think it's a good successor to, uh, to where Star Trek VI left off. Right. Yeah, no, it was good. I enjoyed this book when it came out. I enjoyed listening to it, and I enjoyed reading it uh, here in the last week or so. Yeah. Just just real quick in regards to the Enterprise blowing up, um, and I think The Return, uh, there, was a, there was a scene in, in Star Trek The Return where it, it's from Scotty's point of view, and he's remembering how when he was uh, brought back out of the pattern buffer in mm-hmm. Relics. Yeah. He's remembering how kind of disoriented he was, because the very first thing he thinks when they say the Enterprise, he says, oh, Kirk must have got her out of mothballs to come get me. And then he's like, yeah, I was so confused at that time that I had forgotten that the Enterprise was destroyed on Chow. (laughs) So I thought that was, you know, whether that was Shatner or whether that was, uh, you know, Judith and Garfield Reeve Stevens. Right. Uh, it was a good little retcon to explain why Scotty said that then, but now we know that it shouldn't be there. Right. So, and obviously the writers of that uh, Star Trek Next Generation special that we read a couple weeks ago, 
they were basing the whole mothball thing from relics to explain the Enterprise A still around and, and in a museum somewhere. Right. So, anyways, enough of that. Continuity stuff. Yeah. So, I, you know, I thought, personally, I did not think that the Enterprise had to uh, blow up at the end. No. I think it was a bit gratuitous, quite frankly. Okay. I think this could have easily be written such that the Enterprise would have survived. But and stayed in service of on Chow? Something. I don't think she had. A, I think the way they uh, definitely the audiobook struck me like that, and this too. Right. This one's even worse than the audiobook. I think at least the yeah. audiobook makes you kind of feel for the Enterprise blowing up. Yeah. Here it's really just four panels, and it's mostly explosions. Right. Except for the saucer section, that one. That one looks just like it did from. Star Trek 3, almost. Yeah. Melty. Right. And exploding out the bridge and whatever. Yeah. No, I'm I with you. I, I, they did not have to, to kill her like that. No. Although it was um, spectacular. But Kirk handles it better here than he did when the Enterprise, the original Enterprise, was destroyed. Oh, he's gotten used to it by now. Oh, yeah. Ah, they'll just build another ship. Well, they're already building another ship. There you go. Plenty of letters out there. Or is that Picard? Oh, well. Somebody. One big thing that I think they missed in this story mm-hmm. is Drake's motivation. Yes. Why does he hate Kirk so bad? Yep. Exactly. And they do get into it in the novel, but not in the comic. Right. So go ahead and tell us what his motivation is for the people who didn't read the book. Admiral Drake looked up at the distant ceiling, admiring the bird of prey. 27, 28 years ago, Kirk, stardate 3198.4. Doesn't that ring a bell? I was in the Kalinora sector. Two Klingon battlecruisers had picked off a Starfleet hospital ship, said it was on a spying mission. Women and children were on that ship. My wife was on that ship. We were at war. I chased those Klingon ships. The Code 1 signal went out. So, through indirect action... Uh, or inaction, as far as he's concerned, she ends up getting killed by Klingons. Right. So he blames Kirk because Kirk struck the deal with the Organians. Yeah. yeah. So he blames Kirk for striking the deal with the Organians that then prevented a all-out war with Klingons. Right. At, because they had already killed his wife, and he wants to have his revenge on the Klingons. Which... I guess is an interesting motivation, but... Well, but it's even weaker in the fact that Kirk didn't strike negotiations with anybody. I mean, basically, the Organians forced it on them. Right. So, Kirk didn't have anything to say about it. Now, naturally, he realized, you know, at first he was like, hey, you can't stop our war. And then, luckily, he <laughs> came to, you know, be reasonable. And it's like, oh, well, yeah, actually, I don't want war. So, okay, yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> but it's not like he was pushing for any kind of deal here. Right. So, again, Drake, typical nutcase bad guy. Right. And another big thing that they cut out of this that was in the book that really showed how crazy Drake was. If your Klingons fire now, you'll be killing your own daughter. But I'll be able to take revenge on the one responsible, won't I? 
Drake shook his head in scorn. Now, either kill my daughter or drop your weapon. For once in your life, do something. Kirk dropped the phaser, kicked it away, released Ariadne. He's no. like, kill her. As long as you're dead, I, I don't care if she yeah. lives or dies. And that just really drove home that this dude is nuts. <laughs> exactly. Doesn't care about his only re- remaining relative or right, right. nuclear family anyway. Well, yeah, the only reminder, the only physical living reminder he has of his wife. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, he was, that boy was crazy. <laughs> and all that was cut out here. Now he just seems like the typical mustache twilling villain. Yeah. He he was Tom Cruise crazy. That's what's going on. <laughs> I thought it was and maybe that maybe his insanity helps explain how he suddenly grew uh red sleeves. <laughs> what? <laughs> look <laughs> look at the bottom or the middle of page eighty nine. Okay. So he's got he's got a vest thing the whole time. Then all of a sudden, bam! He's got red sleeves. Yeah, right. So white shirt underneath, and then a vest kind of thing. So his his arms are all white because it's the white shirt underneath. But uh, for some reason, on the view screen, one panel later, he's got red sleeves. I just thought <laughs> I'd point it out. That's hilarious. I did not notice that. Minor, minor. Really, there's only one other thing I wanted to say, and I'm just scanning really quickly for it. Because in the grand uh, tradition in this comic of people every once in a while not look, looking like other people, like Sulu like looking like Patrick Troughton, and then Kirk looking at like a variety of different people, like Lee Majors, there was another one I spotted as you were doing your synopsis. Oh, okay. Oh, that's right. So there was one panel where Kirk looks like George Lazenby. Oh, James Bond. Yes. You know, he's got the really chiseled chin and everything. And I'm trying to find that that particular panel, but he looks a bit like Lazenby. Page 80? 80. Top of page 80? Let me see. Uh, unfortunately, these don't, these don't all have numbers, so let me get down to 80. Uh, yes, that's it. The middle left panel. Right. So th- the upper left hand... No, that's still Kirk. But the middle left, I think that's that's a little like George Lazenby. Right. If I'm pronouncing that right. That's the way I always pronounce it. Yeah. The best Bond ever. You think? No. Okay, good. Sarcasm. He's not the worst. I actually enjoy that movie quite a lot. Yeah, I thought it was fine. But It's just he only got one outing. Yeah. And he was wooden. I'll give you that. He was not. He wasn't an actor. A very. He was not a very emotive actor. He wasn't an actor. I know. I, he okay. Was a what? Model. He, I know he's a model. So he looked perfect for the role. <laughs> and he's Australian. That's that just throws it off right there. Oh, Australian! I didn't know that. Oh my God! No wonder he wouldn't work. He has probably the best line in in all of. In a all Bondum. Of, all of Bondum. Well, what's that? The very beginning when he chases that girl onto the beach and he gives her that big passionate kiss and then she oh. just smacks him in the face and oh, off. Yeah. And then he looks dead at the camera. Yeah. That never would have happened to the other guy. Uh, yeah, that wouldn't have happened to the other bloke or whatever. The guy, whatever. Yeah. yeah, that was good. Anyways, um, so you all have anything else on this? Just to say that 
the other thing about that movie I really loved, it was oh. uh, Emma Peel was on there. Um, the actress who was the love interest. Um, oh, is that who she was? Emma Peel, yeah, from the Avengers. Oh, okay. I didn't what is her? Diane Rigg, that's it. I was so smitten with Diane Rigg when I was a kid. She was just gorgeous. And then she was in the James Bond movie. I was like, wow, cool. I did not know that. Yes. She does not make it to the end of the movie. No, she does not. Spoiler. Which... <laughs> okay. Which is another reason why I really like that movie. I, I love that end ending where he's cradling her and no, she's 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 just asleep. Oh, oh God. Oh. So one true love. Oh well. Right. He'll have many others. But maybe not true. Well, he never married any of the other ones. That's his only wife. Well, but I think he really had something for Holly Goodhead. Or maybe Pussy Galore. Oh, you gotta love those names. Okay, back to Star Trek. Alright, my last comment is, when I was reading the book all those years ago, and now, I still don't understand what advantage the Chow people get out of the harvested human organs. I mean, how does that make sense longer? I don't know. Um, why are mutts always the the coolest dogs going? I don't know. They somehow all these different genetic material is supposed to make a a superior, you know, being. It's like I, you know, I, I thought it was a hard, I thought it was a far fetched theory to try to push, right? To try to explain why they should be so superior. But okay, so let's let's get back to what I had I had mentioned something at the beginning. I just want to bring it up again. Um, she thinks the planet has something about forever young kind of thing. Right. And it's like, okay, you've lived there your entire life. Obviously, you aged. I'm not, you know, I have no confirmation whether you really are 22 years old or you're 40 years old. I'm not, you know, nobody mentioned that. But you got parents, right? So didn't they get older while you were born? And Right. Well, one of the, 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 uh, anarchist that he captured and takes up to the ship you know that's one of their parents yeah and he says that he's 40 something and yet he looks the same age as talani well i don't think that's true i don't think he looks that young well i think that's of course he doesn't look that old that's what they say in the book though yeah i mean that's why he that's like one of the first things kirk asks is how old are you yeah and then when he says you know 40 something he's like okay well that proves that it you do stay young which you know and you're looking at the picture it's hard to tell whether yeah. he looks the same age or not. Well, I think he looks a little older, but really, I'm not going to quibble. Right. But, yeah. Okay, so it's all through genetics. Right. That are specific to them. But right. It's not the fountain of youth like the Baku. Exactly. Well. Okay, fine. Fine, 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 fine. So they're never exposed to normal um, Klingons, then, or normal people. Right, they've been kind of isolated away all this time. Yeah. Okay. Well, and they obviously never had any kind of uh, uh, physical or people checking out their DNA. Not okay. off-world. Nope. There you go. Yep. If you keep reading the Shatnerverse stuff, the child do play a, a further part in the uh, the stories. Oh. Oh, well, that's nice. So we get to see uh, Tylea or whatever. Yes, she's still around. 
Ah. Still has a thing for the captain? All that much. Yes. She said she'll never miss it. She'll never stop missing him. She is true to her word. Oh, that's nice. All right. So I I mentioned earlier that the holodeck had Drake saying, see you in hell, Jimbo. No Jimbo. Well, okay. So see you in hell. Yes. Holodeck says that. Not the real. Not the well. Real. He's generated. Yeah, but, it's computer generated. But that line gets repeated when, uh, when Drake's blowing up, or he's going to blow up. He says, "See you in hell," knowing that he's about to die. Um, I, I just, yep. I mean, yeah, I, I get it's got it kind of bookends the story, mm-hmm. but it doesn't make sense because the first one wasn't really him. Yeah. Details. <laughs> All right. Details. <laughs> You're right. You're right about that. But, um, okay. yeah, right. Yeah, and he does say, "See you in hell." Right. Okay. Right. In the hollow deck thing, whatever. Okay. Great. And my, la- and my last thing. Yeah. You're warping to the sun from orbit of mm-hmm. a planet. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's say it's the third or fourth planet in the solar system. Going at warp, how fast are you going to get to the sun? You're going to get there damn fast. Uh huh. So, do you yeah. think you have enough time to, after you go away, to kind of have a conference? Hey, uh, what do you think you meant? Uh, I I failed when I arrived. Uh, oh, he's probably going to go to the slingshot. Slingshotting thing. Sulu, yeah. Why don't you go on to the transporter, beam over, and come sit in this chair, and yeah. then we're going to start chasing him. Because only only the Enterprise could do it, and Excelsior class ship never did before. Yeah, that that was all really bad for me. Yeah, it made no sense time wise. Bird of prey should have already slingshot around the sun two or three oh, times. Yeah. Well, I, I thought they were going to go back in time. Right. When I was first uh, reading it, not that they were somehow going to you know foil them from doing their slingshot. And by the way, that should have been the plan the whole time. You know, take off quick. Go. Now. Keep him from doing the slingshot thing. Right. Yeah, Bye. not... Hey, Sulu, come on over. We may have to go back in the past. Yeah, it, it, I did not like that part. And that the Enterprise, with all of its, you know, great engines and stuff taken out, was still able to catch up and shoot it down. Well, Mr. Scott, come on. Uh, I don't know. Scotty was working on... Uh... Working on the uh, engines the whole time, man. Making them purr. Yep, yep. All right, that was my last comment. Cool. Anything else? Uh, no, that's it. Please no. This has gone on long enough. <laughs> all right. Well, that finishes off, I think, all of our DC stuff. That was our last one. That wow, really? Stuff. That's it? Yeah. Uh, we'll get... We'll do DC DS9. Late, but, yeah. uh, We're doing DS9 next week. That's obviously not DC. Nope. We're doing Ultimate Annual number one. And there was an Ashcan number one that we're also going to do. Cool. It should be pretty short. So Okay. Well, the end of an era. The end, the close of a chapter in the continuing stories of the crew of the Shar- Starship Enterprise. Oh, well. But they will continue because 
Marvel will pick up the slack in just a few months. <laughs> Good. Excellent. All right. Well, until next week, I guess we'll close off and sorry it ran a little long. Yeah, it was a big book. So thanks for joining us, everybody. And we'll see you next time on The Review. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music stories and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes. Or friend us on Facebook at first name, ST Comic, second name, Book Review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. Let's get the hell out of here.